Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on business and the markets. I'm Simon Long, an editor here at The Economist. And coming up on today's show... What does a strong results season for America's banks say about the economy as a whole? Forget diamonds, white rhodium has become an investor's best friend. And how the world's biggest alcoholic drinks company is finding success in doing everything wrong. But first, it's results time for America's banks which have been publishing their fourth-quarter reports. Despite the Fed's decision to cut interest rates not once but three times, the results of the big banks that have already reported look remarkably strong. Will the smaller ones fare as well? Alice Fullwood is The Economist's finance correspondent. And Alice, I, I mean, they were pretty remarkable, some of these numbers, weren't they? I mean, $36 billion a year in profits for uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, how surprising was all this? J.P. Morgan did particularly well. This is the sort of biggest profit number ever. And in general, the sort of expectations of analysts going into the results season was that the big Wall Street banks with trading desks would probably do quite well in the fourth quarter, but that those sort of results might be tempered by, as you said, the rate cuts. Actually, they came out much stronger than expected. JP Morgan, Citigroup, uh, Morgan Stanley all beat expectations. And the banks that didn't beat expectations were the idiosyncratic one-off factors. And this is across the board, is it? This is their investment banking income, their commercial banking, retail banking? No, so it was kind of a, a quarter of two halves for most of the banks. The banks that did very well were ones that saw their sort of trading businesses do well. So, for example, at JP Morgan, in the fourth quarter of 2018, trading revenue was just $4 billion dollars. It rose to $6 billion this quarter. A few groups saw a similar sort of magnitude of increase, as did Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. All of the trading businesses, in particular bond trading, exceptionally well. But on the commercial side and the retail side, bread and butter businesses that banks were sort of set up to do, that business involves sort of taking in deposits and making loans. And when interest rates are high, you tend to be able to have a bigger gap between the interest rate that you sort of collect on loans as a bank, and the interest rate that you pay out on deposits. So that's what's known as the sort of net interest margin. And when rates are falling, as they did in the second half of last year, that margin tends to be compressed. So Bank of America, their sort of commercial and retail banks didn't do as well as expected because that margin got compressed. And uh, Brian Moynihan, their CEO, said that he expects that to continue for the next couple of quarters. In time at Wells Fargo, which doesn't have that sort of investment bank, trading bank business, their results were one of the banks that didn't do as well as expected. And that's because their net interest income fell by 12% year on year. And what about Goldman Sachs? That's also had some troubles, hasn't it? It did very well in the dynamics that we've talked about. The trading desk did very well, but it did have to book a large litigation expense. And that was for 
it's sort of ongoing troubles with one MDB, the Malaysian investment vehicle that it issued bonds for several years ago. It booked, I think, just over a billion dollars in litigation expenses for that problem. We are expecting to see some news out of the American Department of Justice about how big the fine is that Goldman Sachs will have to pay for its involvement with one MDB, the Malaysian investment vehicle. There's a similar story at Wells Fargo as well. They also booked a very large litigation expense because of ongoing problems with their retail accounts and fake account scandal sort of plagued the bank for several years. So those two banks were the two of the ones that didn't do as well last week. So turning to the smaller boys who are going to start reporting this week when everybody's back at work after the holiday, what are we expecting from them? Right. So we get a lot of the smaller banks this week. These are sort of the, the mid-sized ones like Zion's Bank or the Utah-based bank, about $50 billion in assets compared with the sort of two or three trillion of the big banks and lots of the sort of commercial banks will report as well. These banks have much more traditional banking models. So they do the sort of bread and butter, taking deposits, making loans out of the business. And that was the side of the business that didn't do as well last week because that interest margin was declining. So it seems that for smaller banks, they're unlikely to have had as good a quarter in the fourth quarter of 2019 as the big banks did that reported last week. Is this a worry for the overall economy if the smaller banks aren't doing so well for regional economies throughout the US? There has been a lot of pressure on smaller and mid-sized American banks. And that's partly because you've seen sort of new technologically enabled entrants, sort of tech firms out of Silicon Valley uh, moving into that space. And you have therefore seen some consolidation, a lot of sort of smaller and mid-sized banks merging. I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing for those trends to continue, but certainly it will be a more difficult time for them when interest rates are lower. And that isn't expected to start raising rates again. It's expected to be on hold this year. Um, so that does imply that sort of 2020 might not be as easy a year for them as 2019 was. And what does that say about the state of the economy as a whole in an election year? So I guess the unusual thing about the rate cuts that we saw last year is that they kind of happened at the same time as the American economy was doing, you know, mostly fine. It has slowed down a little bit after the sort of boost that the American economy got from tax cuts. But it hasn't sort of slowed down very significantly. And so, you know, a few interest rate rate cuts, they do tend to sort of like help consumers, help people with sort of outstanding loan balances. And so, you know, maybe it's not so good for the banks that interest rates have gone down. But in general, it's usually quite good for the economy. And the American economy certainly has not slowed very sharply. So it's sort of a, a an almost sort of like Goldilocks scenario going into the election year. Sort of not too hot, not too cold for the American economy right now. Alice, thanks very much. That was just right. Thank you so much, Simon. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Next, in the precious metal market, not all that glitters is coloured gold. The world's most valuable metals are silvery white, rhodium and palladium. Since the beginning of the year, their values have soared. Rhodium is trading over $8,000 per ounce, up 30% since the start of the year. And palladium is at around $2,500 per ounce, but that's still about a 25% jump since the beginning of this year. Sam Blake writes for The Economist 
and has been investigating what's causing the surge. So rhodium and palladium's by far biggest use case is in a part of an automobile engine called a catalytic converter, which is the part of the engine that converts noxious emissions into less harmful gases. I can see that with concern about air quality around the world, there'd be a lot of interest, but presumably there must be supply constraints that must be pushing the price up. Definitely right. On the demand side, there are growing emissions regulations across the world. Um, In China, they're ramping up their regime. Across the EU, testing standards are becoming more stringent in the U.S. as well. And a lot of this also comes in the wake of the uh, 2015 Volkswagen so-called Dieselgate, where they were caught using software to cheat emissions tests. And as you mentioned, Simon, on the supply side, there are dynamics going around as well. One in particular is that there's a high concentration of the supply, in particular of rhodium, in South Africa. In fact, over 80% of the metal is found in mines in South Africa, and they are actually having productivity and profitability issues over the last decade or so. So the supply side there is being trimmed, which of course, alongside the growing demand, is putting upward pressure on the price. Those are all quite long-term trends. Is there a reason in particular why the prices have surged so much in the last few weeks? There is definitely uh, an element of market exuberance here. But there are also some regulations that have kicked in, particularly in the EU, that came into effect just at the beginning of this year. So that was part of the ramp up. And as far as the uh, supply side, you're right. Those are longer term situations and they're difficult to change quickly. So it seems to be basically a combination of sort of a longer-term outlook with uh, the market seeming to have realized that changes are coming, plus, of course, a healthy dose of market exuberance. And on the supply side, is there any chance of getting more out of those existing mines in South Africa or indeed of finding other sources of supply? So part of what's driven the reduction in profitability of those South African mines has been that they seem to have become increasingly less efficient at getting out the metal. A lot of rhodium and palladium is found alongside both gold and platinum, which can often actually be, particularly platinum, the main reason for building a mine. Over time, the efficiency of a mine declines. And as you'd expect, it's not a very quick operation to build a new mine. There are plans to create new mines to help meet some of this ongoing demand. Those will take a while. There's one large uh, mine that I uh, read about that's planned, but that won't be begun even until 2021 and not productive until 2024. So it seems that inelastic supply basically is also a big driver of the price increase. And demand is not really likely to to taper off, is it? Around where I live in London, catalytic converters are the new item of choice for burglars at night, stealing them from cars in the street. It looks like the price has probably already adjusted to a lot of these dynamics, if not overly adjusted. And one thing that's important to recognize is that this won't last forever. In the near future, perhaps within the next five, ten years, once electric vehicles start becoming more popular, the demand of a catalytic converter won't be needed because those engines 
don't have the same sort of emissions problems, and therefore you don't need the rhodium or the palladium to convert any of those noxious emissions into less harmful gases. That, of course, is anybody's guess as to how long it will take. Some expect that for at least the next decade, catalytic converters will be widely used, and even as the transition through hybrid engines is kind of getting us to the next step, those too need catalytic converters. So it kind of remains to be seen as to whether the uh, demand will decrease anytime soon. So whatever advantages the rise of the electric car might bring, it will be bad news for rhodium miners. Sam, thanks very much. Thank you, Simon. And finally, at lavish family weddings, fancy dinners, and even government banquets across China, there'll be one drink on the menu, baijiu. Baijiu is a uh, a Chinese spirit that's uh, particularly popular at this time of year, during the Chinese New Year, but is drunk in lavish quantities. Henry Trix is our Schumpeter columnist. To foreigners, it has an extraordinary taste. Um, One American journalist described it as like drinking uh, liquid razor blades. A book that's just come out describes the first taste of Baijiu as being somewhere between a taste resembling gym shorts, fish sauce, Drano and blue cheese. Uh, So it's not to everyone's taste. But I've been looking at a particular type of Baijiu, the most exclusive brand, which is called Maotai. And who makes it and how big is it as a brand? Well, it's made by a distillery that has a history that goes back hundreds of years, but is particularly significant because of its role during the Chinese Revolution. It's called Kuechao Maotai. And it's remarkably famous historically, first of all, because uh, apparently Chairman Mao and his crew drank it during the Long March, but also Nixon and his Chinese counterpart toasted with it during the famous Nixon's famous trip to China. So it's a, a brand with a tremendous history. And it's also been an extraordinary investment. So I wish I'd been able to talk to you about this five years ago and tip you off about Maotai. So how does the company compare internationally? I mean, where is it up with the the Coca-Colas, the big drinks companies? Well, put it this way, its share price has risen by 600% over the last five years. And now it's the world's second biggest drinks company, second only to Coca-Cola. It's $40 billion short of Coca-Cola, but a hefty $200 billion in my market value. And that's so significant considering that this is a, a company that sells only really one type of liquor, and that's its spirits. And only in one country. And only in one country, has no global presence, no online presence, doesn't sell to millennials. It does everything the wrong way around. Everything that marketers would tell you you shouldn't do, it does. And it's made a wonderful success of it. So what is the secret of its success? If it's doing everything wrong, there must be something it's doing right. Well, what it does is it plays into several themes, I guess, that we often get wrong about selling to China. And it's worth thinking about why we do that. So the first thing is, is that it appeals not to the middle class as such, although everyone in the middle class would like to drink it, but it costs $400 a bottle. So it's not for your average middle class Chinese person. It's actually for the super rich. So the super rich in China, let's just say there are about 70 million of them, about the same number as the population of France, and they guzzle luxury products like, like Maotai. And they're still guzzling Maotai and not expensive brands of cognac or Scotch whiskey. They're coming. 
At the moment, the demographic plays in Maotai's favour. It's sold mostly to elderly people or to people in their sort of 30s and 40s. And you have to remember, this is the generation, the sort of the one-child policy generation, which has basically been lavished with money from elderly parents, etc., during their their lives. So when they get married, it's nothing to splash out in the wedding banquet on lots and lots of bottles of Maotai. Uh, so that's, that's one of the ways. It's funny, you're... you're talking about what sounds like a long-term threat to Malta, I'm reminded, curiously, of a, a conversation we were having earlier in the programme about the precious metal rhodium, which is under threat from the arrival of the electric car. Isn't this the, therefore under threat from, well, the globalisation of China, that young people will be more interested in buying expensive foreign brands, champagne, cognac and so on? I think that's the risk for Maotai. I mean, within China, you could probably compare it to vintage champagne. But the idea is that as the younger generation, the young 20s and 30-year-olds grow up and become richer, they are more likely to buy international brands. This is at least the hope of many companies that are trying to sell into China to that demographic. But there are other aspects to Maotai that look kind of distinctly unsavory. It leaves a little bit of a strange taste in your mouth, besides the actual taste of the stuff. Um, First of all, it's been caught up in a tremendous series of corruption scandals. So when President Xi Jinping cracked down on corruption in government in China, Maotai's shares got clobbered for a short while because it was the currency by which people supposedly bribed government officials. And even now, the company is embroiled in an internal corruption scandal. Its chairman was recently sacked and arrested for alleged bribery. There is a question about whether eventually people will just turn their nose up at it because it's not a very, it doesn't seem like a particularly savoury company. (laughs) Henry, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. And um, just a note for future appearances, Henry, it's usual when we discuss Baijiu on this programme to bring a bottle. I'm sorry, Simon, I kept it all to myself. (laughs) And you can read more about what it takes to get to the top of the alcoholic beverage game in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, you can find more great business and finance stories like this in the print edition. So subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Simon Long in London. This is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.